0: Father, we do rejoice uh, this Christmas season, Lord, as we have been anticipating and expecting Christ's birth along with the Israelites, Lord. We rejoice uh, that you sent your son down to this earth, Lord, fully out of your love for us, fully to come and rescue us, to be able to draw us back to yourselves. Lord, we were hopeless and helpless without you, but Lord, we do celebrate of Christ because his birth means that you will take him to that cross where on that cross he will pay for our sins die the death that we deserved and then rise again defeating sin and death forever Lord bringing us victory and freedom in you Lord that we can know you that we can experience Emmanuel God with us where at Christmas you came down in the flesh but now for us as believers today the spirit resides within us so, Spirit, we ask that you would teach us today from your word, uh, that you would help us to see who our Savior is more clearly, that we would love him more deeply through this time. So in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Well, good morning, CBC. Uh, looks like y'all all decided to come to this service, uh, so <laughs> thanks for that. But it's beautiful to see uh, all the seats filled today. Um, for those of you who maybe haven't met me yet, my name is Tim Doan, and I'm the pastor of operations and assimilation here at CBC. Uh, and I've been asked what that means. So I'll meet some of you guys, pastor operations and assimilation, and then I always get asked, so what do you actually do? And I think we're still figuring it out. <laughs> uh, two weeks ago, it meant that I was up here getting to help lead worship. Today, it means that I get to come and deliver a message to you all but I do think the simplest way to put it is that I'm here to help our church run smoothly and effectively. I love kind of business and logistics, but also then to help people get connected to our church body. Uh, my wife, Amanda, she and I got married almost four months ago in September, and then I started here at CBC a month later. We have very much enjoyed being here at the church. and I just want to take a moment, thank you guys for how you've welcomed us and included us. I mean, Marriage itself, the first few months, whoa, (laughs) right? Like, it is an adjustment and great in so many ways. But one of the kindest ways that the Lord has, like, been encouraging us has been through this body. And to know that he has chosen us to be able to come here and to serve with you guys and be in community is incredible. So at the moment, we still live in Savannah. We are eager to move down here and be a part of this community. But I did just want to thank you for that. And actually how we ended up here at CBC, it's kind of a crazy story. It's one of those where when I look back on it, like I can see how all these things took place, specifically the Lord was arranging these details uh, when I wasn't even aware of it. Like I think it was a random Tuesday morning in June, and I came down to a way station coffee, uh, and I had been doing that for the last year every other Tuesday, and on these Tuesdays I would spill out all of my life's problems onto Coleman (laughs) for him to fix, uh, and I highly recommend that, by the way. That man is full of wisdom, and I think his schedule is like really open. So y'all go for it, flood his inbox, he would love to meet with you. Uh, but it just so happened that my problem of the week, I was sensing the Lord, like kind of lifting my eyes up from the work I was doing previously, and it was kind of a new, new feeling for me. So I was explaining that to him of why is the Lord kind of lifting up my head from my work? And um, so I, we were talking through that, and I asked him, I was like, can I see an example of one of your ministry resumes. Like maybe, just maybe, the Lord's going to move me along. And, and so asked if I could see his resume, and so he opened up his computer. He's going to find an old one. But what he opened up to was what he had been working on, which was a document filling out all of the pastoral needs that CBC Richmond Hill has at the moment. And so he's like excited as he explains this to me, and then he like spontaneously gets called away from the table for about five minutes. And so there I am having just explained, I think the Lord might be calling me to look up from my job, And then there on his computer are all these pastoral needs written out. And I'm thinking, like, I think this fits me well, right? And so it's one of these moments, almost like when a puzzle piece, like, fits really well in a place. We've been doing a lot of puzzles this this month. And it's like when it's, like, oddly satisfying how it just all connects together. And I wondered if it was, like, one of those moments. Um, And I was, like, wondering, like, is the Lord going to use this very normal Tuesday morning in an actually unexpected way? And sure enough, that meeting led to conversations with Andrew, which then led to conversations with the elders and a lot of prayer, and then a phone call telling my fiance that a month after we got married, I was going to start a new job. (laughs) But I had no idea that God was using an ordinary Tuesday morning for his purposes. But looking back on it, I can't help but see his hands all over it. like He sovereignly orchestrated those events that Tuesday morning. and I think that's really similar to what we're going to see in our text today. As we're finishing our Behold series from Luke chapter 1 and 2, we're going to see God's sovereignty on display as he uses seemingly like normal circumstances to put together a meeting. And that meeting that he puts together is going to lead to one really important message, and that message then leads to an ultimate question. So if you're like me, if you like processes or structure or schedule, that's our schedule this morning. We have a meeting that leads to a message it ends with a question. So, our passage this morning begins in Luke 2, verse 22. So, you can go ahead and turn there. And this meeting that takes place is going to be between a young family, a man, and a woman. None of these people knew that this meeting was taking place, but it was clearly set up by God. So, let's begin reading in verse 22, where we're going to be introduced to the young family, and that's Mary, Joseph, and one month old Jesus. Let's read the first few verses. It says, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him—that's Jesus—up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord: every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord: a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, did that confuse anyone? I mean, it sounds kind of like Leviticus, right? But we're in Luke. What's going on? Well, this is because Joseph and Mary are following the law that is written in Leviticus. In that law, it says that uh, a mother, after giving birth, has to wait 40 days for purification, and then following those purifications, she's to go to a priest and offer a sacrifice. So they're following the law right from the book. Um, And in that Levitical law, the sacrifice that the mother is required to bring is a lamb and then either a turtle dove and a pigeon. But there's there's words in there as well that says, if the mother cannot afford a lamb, then she is to bride two of the turtle doves or pigeons, and that'll suffice. And what do we see here in our text? Mary and Joseph, they take the poorer option, revealing y'all you know, their poverty. And I, I love that God chose to be born into a poor family. I mean, that had to be like completely unexpected. I mean, remember, the Israelites were waiting for all of these hundreds of years for their Messiah, wondering how he was going to bring them out of oppression, how he's going to bring them comfort, and the Messiah is born into a family that can't afford a lamb. This means that the first people that Jesus identifies with when he's here on this earth is the poor of the earth, the very ones that he came to save. All right, so now back to the meeting of the story. Our young family, we've got the Josephs, and they're there in the temple of Jerusalem to make this offering before the Lord to present Jesus to God. This is Mary and Joseph. They're being faithful Israelites, doing everything that's required of them. Now, before we meet the others involved, I think it's important to note, like, where this is taking place. So we're talking about the people. Where's the place? Where is this happening? This is the temple of Jerusalem. That's like the epicenter of Israel, where their most sacred beliefs and hopes are enshrined. And, y'all, this temple is huge, like, dozens and dozens of acres with all the courtyards surrounding And I'm telling you guys that because this is like not a place that you could just say, hey, let's go meet up at the temple. That would be like saying, hey, let's go meet up in downtown Savannah. Like you got to be more specific than that. And why that matters for us today is because the fact that this meeting is about to take place shows how involved God was in orchestrating this young family, this man and this woman to all intersect. So let's meet the man. His name is Simeon. So let's start in verse 25. It says now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the holy spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the holy spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ All right the first two words that Luke uses to describe Simeon here it's righteous and devout so immediately upon reading about him we respect him we want to see what he has to say Luke then says that Simeon, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think a couple of weeks ago we discussed about this consolation and how that's comfort that's promised to Israel uh, through all of the prophecies. So he not only knows about the comfort that's coming to Israel, but he's anticipating it, which means he's looking, he's watching, he's waiting for God to act. And then it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him and that it had been revealed to him that he would not see death before he saw Jesus. So this man, Simeon, was indwelled by the Holy Spirit and God had actually like personally communicated with Simeon that he would see the Messiah before his death. And guys, now that day is upon him. is taking place. Look at the first few words of verse 26 and it says, He came in the Spirit into the temple. So here it is. This is God's sovereignty taking an ordinary day and leading these people into a divinely appointed meeting. Let's keep reading. It says, He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. All right, y'all, I want you to imagine this actually taking place. So Simeon feels led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple that day. So he walks up to the temple. There's all these people around. He's just observing them, might not know why he's there yet at the moment. And then he spots this young family over purchasing the turtle doves, right? And they have this little one-month-old baby with them and he hears from the Spirit, that's him. And he knew. He knew that that was him. That is the Savior. And so Simeon approaches Mary and Joseph and literally like, takes the child up in his arms. This is it doesn't really say, I mean, it could have been like holding him like a normal thing, could have been a Simba style, but he's holding up this child and starts praising God. I mean, imagine Mary and Joseph in this moment, this man just ran across the temple courts and picked up their baby and starts worshiping. They got to be completely shocked. And that, like, I know we're 2,000 years removed from this, but I don't think our culture is so far removed that this is an appropriate thing for Simeon to be doing. But his excitement just like can't help it because he's seen the Messiah, And then Simeon will move into a pretty shocking and somewhat confusing prophecy given to Mary and Joseph. So we're going to come back to that. uh, But for now, let's see the last participant that's involved in this meeting. Her name is Anna. It's starting in verses 36, if you'll jump down there. It says, And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love Anna. Uh, Luke highlights three pretty broad things about her. One, Anna is very much an Israelite. So looking into this daughter of Phanuel, tribe of Asher, there's nothing overly significant about it but it's saying she is very much an Israelite. An Israelite of Israelites, that is Anna. And then it also has this advanced in years. That's like the kind biblical way of saying she's old. <laughs> um, and your, your translation, it might look like she's 84 years old, um, but it actually says her widowhood was 84 years old, so there's a chance you do some backwards math. She might be over 100 years old, this woman. We also see that Anna is very godly. She's considered a prophetess, meaning she also had the Holy Spirit residing within her, teaching her, speaking to her. And rather than remarrying in her 20s, which would have been the common thing to do in that day, she instead dedicated her life to God. Y'all, this is extraordinary devotion from Anna. She had to be well-known at the temple since she was there so much, likely highly revered for holding the title of prophetess. And so Anna's role in this meeting is simply that she overhears what's happening. Now, again, think about how big this this temple is. And so how the Lord orchestrated her to see Simeon rushing across to this family, scaring the parents half to death, picking up baby Jesus and declaring who he is. And she understands. She gets it. She knows who Simeon is holding, that this is Jesus the Messiah, the Savior to all peoples. And what does she do with that? Verse 38 tells us, At first, she thanks God, which means she realizes this incredible gift. And then second, Anna starts spreading the gospel, talking about it to anyone who will listen. She becomes an evangelist, using her gift and calling as a prophetess to declare the news of Jesus' birth. All right, so there's the meeting. We have the young family of Joseph and Mary and one-month-old Jesus. They're bringing him uh, to dedicate him to the Lord, to purify their family. You have this man, Simeon, who recognizes Jesus as the savior of the world, and he declares who he is, and then the woman, Anna, who oversees it all, praising God and sharing the good news with all who, are, who will hear. Okay, there's the meeting. What does this divinely appointed meeting actually accomplish, though? What's it here for? Well, I was saying two things, and the first thing I saw was that Simeon and Anna's testimony brings a lot of credibility to Jesus being the Messiah. Their testimony brings a lot of credibility that this really is the Messiah. Uh, Consider the details that Luke is providing about both Simeon and Anna. They're actually really similar, a lot of overlap. They're both older. They're both filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon, he prophesies. Anna, she's considered a prophetess. They both anticipated the redemption for Israel. They're both looking for the the redemption for Israel. Uh, They both recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and then when they... Uh, see him as Messiah, they both end up praising him. Y'all, all all of these details provided about them, this is Luke's way of saying, hey, these two right here, these are credible witnesses. In the ancient world, older age was revered and honorable. So to say that a witness was older wasn't just describing them. To say a witness was older, that's implying that the witness was reliable. And so um, also seeing Simeon and Anna here, they're like the best representatives that Israel can have Um, with their godliness. So they're in this story to say, this is really him. This is the Messiah. That's not all that this meeting accomplished. Perhaps even more significant is the message that comes from the meeting. And that message is Simeon's prophecy. So let's look at what Simeon said, starting again in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So this might be really easy to gloss over. You all confess, the very first time I read this, I read through it quick. It sounds churchy, sounds like, yep, he's a savior, and I was moving on. Uh, But there's actually something kind of odd about this. Um, So let's look at it. First, Simeon says that he's, he's seen salvation that God's prepared. Well, that checks out. He sees salvation right there in Jesus, so that checks. And then at the end of it, he says, this is for glory to your people Israel. Well, that also makes sense. The Savior was going to come from Israel, and so there he is, glory to Israel. That checks out. But look at the middle. It says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Well, what's, what's significant about that? You know, the Israelites, they hated the Gentiles. This is their enemies, Gentiles is anyone who wasn't an Israelite. This is an outsider. And the Israelites, they were the special ones. They were God's chosen people. They were the holy nation. And for generations as far back as they could remember, the Israelites had been under the oppression of the Gentiles. They, you know, they thought that salvation was coming to them to, to remove them from the oppression of the Gentiles. And yet Simeon is saying that it's through Israel that God is bringing salvation not just to them, but also to the Gentiles and to the world. Now remember where this is taking place. This is in the middle of the Jerusalem temple. The Gentiles weren't allowed in there. This is the central heart of their faith around Israelite leaders, a multitude of Jerusalem citizens, and Simeon is boldly declaring that salvation is coming to the Gentiles as well. I mean, this has to catch the attention of Israelites. It has to raise some eyebrows. It's probably insulting some of the Israelites in some ways. But Simeon isn't declaring something new. And throughout the Old Testament, God had been declaring through his word that salvation would extend beyond Israel. We see it in Psalm 22 where it says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. We see it in Isaiah 49 that I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Simeon is just affirming what God has already said about this Messiah. And then Simeon shifts from broad statements to all, and he focuses in specifically on Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 33. He says, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon, he blessed them. And then he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fallen rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's opposed. Now there's our word, behold. Okay, Look closely. Catch this. Pay attention to this. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. It's kind of some odd language there, but simply put, some of the Israelites will embrace Jesus, and some are going to reject him. Some are going to accept him. Some are going to reject him. There's going to be division here. I mean, But Jesus is coming as a redeemer. He's not coming as a uniter, which is what they might have expected. But Jesus says, them, says this about himself in Luke 12. Ten chapters later, he says, Do you think that I have come to get peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So in other words, the Messiah that the Israelites are expecting is not the Messiah that all Israelites will accept when he finally arrives. Let me say that again. The Messiah that the Israelites are expecting is not the Messiah that all Israelites will accept when he finally arrives. All right, then Simeon has some very personal words for Mary. Look at the first half of verse 36. It says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This is in parentheses because the grammar here shows that Simeon's speaking directly to Mary. He says that she will have a double-edged sword that pierces her own soul. If you guys have been reading through our Advent book this Christmas called The Songs of Christmas, it was written by Nancy DeMoss. You know what this is already about. She covers it really well. So for those who haven't read that yet, Let me use her words to explain uh, what Simeon is saying here to Mary. Nancy DeMoss, she says, Mary, we know, would go on to see her son rejected, reviled, misunderstood, and openly abused to the point of being gruesomely tortured and murdered. She was there. She saw it all. This sword that Simeon had talked about, a large, broad, double-edged sword, piercing her own soul, not just once, but again and again. Yes, she would feel the stabbing fulfillment of that prophecy. What's coming for the life of Jesus is going to break Mary's heart, but church, it is also going to redeem her heart, for it's her sin too that Jesus will pay for on that cross. Listen, I I think that when we think about Christmas, We usually think, right, of like all kinds of happiness and presence. We think of a precious baby and a little drummer boy that's leading animals in a song. But in reality, church, the first story of Christmas is God bringing hope into a very dark and very messed up world. Jesus didn't come in the way that many people expected. His redemption wasn't going to look as neat and clean as a lot of people thought. He was going to divide the Israelites down the middle and graft in Israel's sworn enemies. Simeon then ends his prophetic message with these nine words. Look at the second half of verse 35. It says, So that thoughts from hearts may be revealed. So that thoughts from hearts may be revealed all of Simeon's prophecy culminates here. Jesus, the salvation of God, being shown before all people, coming out of the nation Israel, bringing in the foreigner Gentiles, dividing between those who accept him and reject him, he has come to reveal the thoughts of our hearts. Jesus' ministry, it really shows where hearts really are before God. I mean, we see this clearly in his time on earth, in his actions, his conversations with others. Regularly, like, bring to the surface the thoughts that they have in their hearts. This is what Simeon is declaring that Jesus isn't just gonna go along with surface level faith. Jesus doesn't want lip service. He's here to see who is truly following God. All right, so we had a meeting that nobody other than God was expecting to happen that day, and from that meeting came this message that Jesus is coming to reveal our hearts. And that brings us to one question this morning. That question is, is your heart beholding Jesus? Is your heart beholding Jesus? This whole Advent series has been about beholding Jesus, looking at him closely, observing him, being sure to see him and don't miss this, or don't miss him. And actually, since I've been here at CBC Richmond Hill, I mean, when Amanda and I came in, this church was singing loudly that song, Behold Him. Right? We were declaring that as a church that we would treasure Christ. And then we get into this Behold series. And I do think that the Lord is pressing this on us, that CBC Richmond Hill will be a church that beholds Jesus, that really treasures him for who he is. And this final narrative surrounding Jesus' birth shows that this is what Jesus is looking for in us. Will we behold him? Now, many of us here here today would say that we have accepted Jesus, that we do behold him, that we recognize him as the Messiah, just as Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna did. And I praise God uh, that he has brought us to salvation. And when we really do experience that, when we behold Jesus, when we trust him, when we abide in him, y'all, things change. Like, like we actually change. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, motivations, goals, desires, they become more and more like Jesus, the more and more that we sit with him, the more and more that we behold him. And in that meeting that we read through in this passage, we can see actually how Mary and Joseph, and then Simeon, and then Anna, how all of them are actually affected by beholding Jesus. They are all changed in the way that they behold Jesus. So let's look at each of them again to see what changes within them. So starting with the young family, Mary and Joseph, you know, think about the last year that Mary and Joseph had just had, Right as they are engaged to be married, and then they have the angels appearing to them, saying that they're going to, uh, Mary is going to get pregnant with the Savior of the world, pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She's having these conversations uh, with Elizabeth, getting encouragement from her. The birth of John the Baptist, finally the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Like they have had many, many months of learning about the coming Messiah, of of actually then seeing him and beholding this Savior, and so now how are they described in this passage? You might have picked up on this already. Nearly every verse that mentions them here shows Mary and Joseph being really faithful. Here's a list of just how faithful they were. In verse 21, they're circumcising Jesus on the eighth day. That fulfills Leviticus 12. Also in verse 21, they give the child the name Jesus. They're being obedient to what God commanded them through the angel Gabriel. In verse 22, they await 40 days of cleansing before coming to the temple. That fulfills Leviticus 12. In verse 22, they bring Jesus to Jerusalem. That fulfills Exodus 13. And in verse 24, they offer the sacrifice for Mary's purification. That fulfills Leviticus 12. And actually, when it talks about her purification, I found this fascinating. It says their purification. This is plural showing they went above and beyond just the minimum requirements because they were likely providing a sacrifice for Joseph's purification also. And then finally, as this passage closes out, look over at verse 39. It says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, this family was serious about their faithfulness to God. Like, there was nothing stingy about it. They were eager to be faithful to God so, church, let me ask you, like, are you eager in your faithfulness to Jesus? Let me rephrase that. Like, do you see faithfulness to Jesus as a duty or as a delight? Here's what I mean by this. For me, when I was growing up, when I was in grade school, y'all, I did not enjoy schoolwork. My goal was to do the absolute bare minimum to get the grades needed to get into UGA. Go Dogs. Nothing more than that. And my mom was keenly aware of this, <laughs> and she regularly, and I mean more than regularly, was encouraging me to give my full effort to whatever was in front of me, especially my education. And I mean, y'all, I, like, I created grade calculators to determine what tenth of a point I needed to get the A, and that's all I got and nothing more. <laughs> and what did this reveal about me? It revealed that I cared way more about being a George Bulldog than I did about actually studying what was in front of me. I didn't delight in school. I had other things that I loved more. In schoolwork, it was just a necessity in front of me that had to get done so I could move on to the things I enjoyed more. It was a duty. On the flip side, what does it look like to pursue something that's a delight? Well, as I was working on this message, I had the school illustration down. I thought of that pretty quickly quickly. But I was struggling to think of an example for this, and uh, I asked Amanda, my wife, (laughs) I said if she could think of something for me that was a delight for me, and she immediately said, oh, of course, it was when you dated me. (laughs) And we laughed a lot, Uh, but it's true. It's so true. When I was dating Amanda, she lived in Macon, I was here in Savannah, and so that took effort, that took work. Y'all, I-16 is so long and incredibly boring. The only thing that's on I-16 is like a Wild Georgia Safari Park that's attached to a gas station. And yes, we did it as a date. Um, <laughs> you know, I did not go bare minimum in my pursuit of her. I went all out. I loved getting to learn her, to know her, to be with her regularly. Like I have no many idea how many miles I put on my car that year and a half. I do know that my net worth at least cut in half, but I would do it. All over again, if I had to, because it was a way that I could serve her and know her and delight in her and be with her. Y'all, you know, this sacrifice of that work felt like a small price to pay for such a rich treasure. So I ask y'all this morning, like, what does your faithfulness to Christ look like? Are we scraping the bottom of the barrel, just doing the bare minimum and say we passed? Like, to feel like we've honored God enough? Or do we see it as a delight? It's a privilege, as an honor to live the way we were intended to from the beginning. Here's how Scripture speaks about faithful living to God. In First John chapter 5, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John 15, 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now hear this, faithful living is not a burden for us to carry, it's a blessing for us to receive. Say that again, faithful living is not a burden for us to carry, it is a blessing for us to receive. Church, we are invited to a life of faithful obedience to Jesus. It is a privilege and a delight that we get to walk in. The fact that we can abide in his love at all is incredible and it is offered right to us. And church, I'm afraid of this for you guys because I've experienced it myself where I think the world and the enemy is trying to tell us that faithful living in the Christian life is missing out on a ton of joys and pleasure that this world has to offer. And y'all, that's all lies. Like we are able to be who we were created to be when we walk in faithfulness with Jesus. This is abiding with the God of the universe who spoke in this world was created. This is abiding with the Savior who knows you deeply and intimately and loves you more than anyone ever could. We're invited to this not because we have impressed him at all. No, we were enemies to him, yet he made Christmas happen and he made Easter happen so that we can now have this gift of faithful obedience to him to abide in his love. And so we see that for Mary and Joseph, faithfulness, it's an effect that comes from them as they were beholding Jesus. Let's look now at Simeon. When Simeon beholds Jesus, he takes him up in his arms, blesses Jesus, and then look at verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon's saying, now I can die. And this word here means release or dismissal. So it can be that euphemism for death that would fit really well because the Spirit had told him that he wouldn't die until he saw Jesus. But on the other hand, it can be used in the sense of like to discharge, like as from, from faithful service. Think of a watchman who can leave his assigned post because the anticipated event has come to pass. Here, Simeon has life-transcending peace. He's saying that now that he's seen the Savior Nothing else matters. His work's finished. He can leave his post. He can depart this world because in comparison, nothing else matters now that he has beheld the Savior. And for those of us who behold Christ, like, do we experience that type of all-consuming peace that no matter what circumstance comes our way, what suffering we go through, be it job loss or cancer or miscarriage or loneliness or depression or even death, that no matter what suffering in this world, we face, we are secure because Christ has come and he's coming again. Do you experience that peace? Do you experience the peace in Philippians where it says to not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with all thanksgiving? Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and it'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus or in John 16 where Jesus says that I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace that the world brings tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world beholding Jesus results in peace for Simeon beholding Jesus will result in peace for us then lastly let's look again at Anna well, what do we see about Anna remember her age right she's potentially pushing or beyond 100 and when she recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, she immediately gives thanks to God, speaking of him to anyone who would listen. You know, Anna, she was not content to just sit on this information she had. Y'all, she got feisty. Like, she was shuffling her 100-year-old self around that temple, talking to anyone who would listen, pointing over him. Of, That's him. That's the Savior. That's who we've been longing for. He's right here. Like, don't you see him? She could not stop talking about him. And what's going on with someone when they can't stop talking about something? Well, from my perspective, they're either in a pyramid scheme or (laughs) they're doing CrossFit or that like F3 thing that I keep hearing about this past few months being here, or they're just really, really, really full of joy. Parents, you know this well, right? When your kid is excited, they talk about it all the time. In church, do you experience joy from beholding Christ that leads you to tell other people about him? I know that can be like, hard and scary at times. I'm not asking if you're always bouncing off the walls excited, but I am asking, like, do you see in yourself a desire to share with others what Jesus is teaching you? Listen to this from 1 Peter. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Anna beheld Christ, and she was filled with joy. Do you have that joy in Christ? So today is New Year's Eve, and many of you have been thinking uh, about resolutions. Maybe you're one of those people that does a word of the year. Uh, Maybe you're thinking about what your family's going to undertake, how this year will be different, how it could be better, how it could be more. But hear me, this sermon is not about how to do better or how to try harder. This is not about how to achieve your best year yet. This sermon is an invitation to behold Christ, to allow his spirit to dwell within you, to allow the gifts of his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, to allow the gifts of his spirit to flow out from you to those who are around you. I think a verse that's really helpful with this is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. It says, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Church, this is an invitation to behold that God is, is the faithful one, even when we are not. He is our peace that is unshaken, even when our world could be crumbling around. And he will uphold our joy because it's rooted in his promises, not in our circumstantial happiness. So whether you've been walking with Christ for 80 years or you are beginning today, it is an invitation to see God at work in our lives through an ordinary meeting, through an ordinary message, to produce in us one question, will I behold him today? Will I trust that he is a savior of the world in my life? And how will that good news transform us? It's, it's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you <laughs> for your truth in scripture and just how we can see that people are changed from beholding Christ. And God, I hope that as we unpacked that passage this morning, that people are seeing in their lives how you have changed them from when they've been beholding you. And God, I also too hope that you are bringing up within this church ways that we have neglected beholding you. And God, in that, may we come to you in repentance, not in condemnation, because Lord, you have through Christ taken away all condemnation. You are a kind, gracious, loving Father that is giving yourself to us and saying, come and be with me and abide in my love. And so, Lord, I do ask that that would be what people leave with today, that they would seek to behold Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. <laughs>